that's going out through police to victim support. It's going out through Plunkett uh, to families that have uh, and are struggling. Uh, it's going out through our congregations to people that have uh, had a tough year. And uh, it's a pretty impressive thing. So there's still an opportunity if you want to, uh, still want to give into that. We're still about $25,000 short. And um, if, you, uh, if, if you wanted to give last week but maybe weren't here for our offering, please feel free to do that at the end of the service. Grab an envelope, put it in. That would be fantastic. Going to be great. Hey? We've got some Christmas things coming up, which is always very exciting. Uh, Christmas production this week. And uh, so we're, we're all planning to get as many of us as we can on Friday night. Friday night's kind of been set aside uh, for there's a bunch of seating there that's available for city people. That's kind of the night when we're going to try and go along. Um, our staff will be serving on a couple of different nights. But uh, yeah, we'd love to see you there on Friday night for our, our Christmas extravaganza, 159 Botany Road uh, at our Botany campus. That's going to be amazing. And then the following week, of course, we've got our Christmas Eve carol service, uh, which is always just a lovely thing through. And often what happens is we do our carol service and a whole bunch of us will wander down from here and check out the Franklin Road uh, lights, which is a bit of fun, uh, on Christmas Eve. And then, of course, our Christmas Day service. So we would love to see you at any or all of those. That'd be great. Well, I'm going to be speaking today on the wonder of Christmas. The wonder of Christmas. And, you know, the Christmas story really is a story that is remarkable. It's a remarkable story. God entered the world that he created. It's a story of answered prayer. It's a story of uh, angel visitations, supernatural conception, fulfilled prophecies. It's a story of shepherds and wise men and, and angel choirs singing, appearing in the sky. And of course, it's a story about a baby, a baby that was born into this world, uh, who would grow up to give his life in one incredible powerful, sacrificial act for all of humanity, once in history, for all time. And God now continues to work out that incredible power for salvation in each of our lives uh, as we go on. You know, to a cynical world, Jesus was a revolution. And Jesus is still a revolution today. It never ceases to amaze me when, uh, uh, when someone accepts Christ, when they give their lives to him. It's, a, it's an internal revolution that happens in their world. Everything has changed. Everything looks different for them. And you, you can see that in their eyes. You can hear that in the stories they tell as their life begins to unfold in a completely different direction. It's an incredible thing. And what I love most about God, I mean, I love so much about God. But what I do love about God is that at the end of the day, he comes to us one by one. And the Christmas story starts with him coming to one young woman, a young woman called Mary, a humble young woman, who was willing to take God at his word and allow God to have his way in her life. So we all know the Christmas story. The angel appears, talks to Mary. Mary conceives by the Holy Spirit, is pregnant, and uh, she's carrying this Messiah that has been promised for, uh, for all of Jewish history, really. That this Messiah would come. And now, Mary is carrying him. Uh, she's trusted what God has said to her. And so, uh, as a result of this, she, uh, she goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth. The angel has, has kind of said to her, by way of confirmation, like, this is going to happen, and, and in fact, you're... Cousin Elizabeth, who 
is barren and well past the age of being able to have child, you know, well past menopause. She now is in her sixth month. And so Mary hurries off to see her. As much, I'm sure, to see, is this, is this really going to happen? Has this really happened? As well as probably, if we're honest, she probably wants to get out, get out of town for a while. She's a young unmarried girl in a very religious cultural environment. This is was, this was not a happy place for a girl who's pregnant out of wedlock. And so she goes to visit Mary, and God is beginning to bring his plan to save mankind to its fulfillment. So she hurries off to this town where Zechariah and Elizabeth live in the hill country of Judea. And uh, Mary walks in the house, you know, pushes the door open maybe, calls out, Hey, Elizabeth! Or maybe it's like, Is anybody here? And then something extraordinary happens. That as she calls out a greeting, Elizabeth feels something in this in her womb, in her, in her stomach. This baby doesn't just kind of kick. This baby doesn't just turn. She's, the baby literally jumps for joy, and she is filled with the Holy Spirit. And she walks out, and there's Mary, and it's this incredible, incredible greeting, this incredible meeting of these two women who have had amazing encounters with God. And this is what Elizabeth says to her young niece. Sorry, to a cousin. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? It's a, it's a prophetic declaration. She says, the mother of my Lord. It's been revealed to her that what this young girl is carrying will be her Lord and her God and her Savior. As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord will fulfill his promises to her. You know, it's so interesting, isn't it? Even in this story on which we, we know so much has been laid out, yet there is an element of it which is contingent upon Mary going, okay, God, I'm going to trust you. How many times in our lives are the promises of God to us contingent in some way upon us saying, okay, God, I'm going to trust you. Even though it makes no sense to me, even though I don't understand how this is going to happen, even though the circumstances don't look good, God, I'm going to trust you. And I want to say that there are some of us here today that are believing for something, carrying something, hoping for something, I want to encourage you to trust in him today. Regardless of the circumstances, regardless of how the situation is looking, will you, like Mary, say, God, I will trust in you. May it be done to me according to your word. And so then what happens after Elizabeth speaks, then Mary speaks. Uh, it, it's, it's a prophetic thing that she, she speaks. In fact, it's become known as one of the great hymns in the world called the Magnificat. It's an extraordinary series of things that she says. And if we had been there, if we had been in the room when Mary spoke, we would have stopped in our tracks. Because something happens in the atmosphere when somebody gets a message from God, begins to speak prophetically. The atmosphere changes. I remember many years ago when uh, Liz and I were just new to the whole pastoring thing and, and uh, we'd taken over the, this church from uh, Pastor Bob and Maggie and uh, I knew that the first thing we had to do was to really get a, a vision from the Lord for what this new season was going to be like and man, I, I thought this can't be too hard, right? We should have this whacked out by Tuesday. And, uh, and so then like t literally two years later, two years later of God, what's wrong with me? Why can't I do this? Am I the wrong person? God, I can't seem to get a sense, Lord, of what you're wanting to do in this church in this season. 
And it was a Friday night, and Liz and I were out walking from our place down to the fish and chip shop to get fish and chips for the family for tea. And, and as we're talking, I'm, I'm, I'm sharing my frustrations with what is going on. And then Liz began to speak, and it was, it was something different than just Liz, Liz speaking. And I remember so clearly, I stopped in my tracks. Liz walks on a few steps. I said, I said baby, baby, hold on. Liz, is this like a prophetic thing? Like, is God speaking through you? Because it kind of sounds like he is. And she says, hmm, I, I think he might be. I said, awesome. I'm going to shut up. You're going to talk and say it all, and let's hear what God has to say. Like, that, something changes in the atmosphere when God begins to bring something supernatural. It just happens. And if we had been there, I think we all would have stopped in our tracks because there was a sense in Mary speaking that this was something that the Holy Spirit was saying. Let me read it to you. She said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of a servant from now on. All generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their innermost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Now the commentator uh, Reverend William Barclay says that in this passage, Mary is uttering revolutionary things. He says that what she actually does is she speaks of three revolutions that Jesus is going to bring in the world and in our experience of God and as the people of God following his plans for our lives. He says these three revolutions are as follows. Number one, that Jesus is going to bring a moral revolution. In verse 51, he says, he has scattered those who are proud in the innermost thoughts. You know, Christianity is the death of pride. True Christianity is the death of pride. When a, a person considers their life against the life of Jesus, <laughs> it dissolves any last shred of pride because that's what following Jesus means, right? It means asking, how am I doing against Jesus? It's not, about, it's not about comparing ourselves to anybody else. He is the one. He is our model. He is the example. He is the guide. I, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you've had a guide. I've had the privilege of doing some river rafting on the Kaituna with my children, and I'm going again this year with Katie, our youngest. And on this particular stretch of the river, you go over an eight-meter waterfall, it's the highest commercially rafted waterfall in the world, and I promise you it is terrifying. Uh, but we have a guide in the back, and that guide tells us everything that we are to do. He is the voice behind us. He sits in the back saying, this is the way to paddle. Paddle in it. He teaches us how to hold the paddle. He teaches us how to pull our strokes. He teaches us the different commands that we need to listen to. He shows us where to hold on to when we go down the waterfall. He tells us how to work together. And our job is simply to try and emulate the guide in every possible way that we can. 
That, ladies and gentlemen, is what it means to follow Jesus. We are to emulate our guide in every possible way that we can. I believe it's a word for somebody here. I really do. I believe God is saying, and I felt this earlier on this morning, God is saying to somebody, who maybe some people here, you need to stop comparing yourself against your mates, against your colleagues, against those that you surround yourself with. You may only compare yourself against my son. He is the only one who will guide you rightly. I don't know who that's for this morning but I believe that's for somebody today. You see, this whole thing of, of Jesus being the death of pride, this is so powerful in our lives. If we will stop and, and look at Him, let Him be the one that we measure ourselves against. And this is powerful in every era of our lives, but none more so, I believe, than in marriage. How many times in my marriage have I felt that I am right and my lovely wife Elizabeth is wrong. How many times have I felt that I just give and give and give and she just takes me for granted? How many times have I felt that I carry this great weight of responsibility for our family? Can you hear the violins now? And that so often this thing just impinges on my life. You know, and then I just stop and just take one look at Jesus. Just one look at Jesus. And his relationship with his people, his church, compared to my relationship with the bride that he gave me, and my pride is shattered. I have nothing to stand on. Ephesians 5.25, husbands. Any husbands here today? Any, any husbands-to-be here today? Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus is the example of a husband's life. When I stop for a moment and I consider him, and I consider how he gave up his, his, his life, he gave up his livelihood, his job, he gave up his income, he gave up his home to see his bride established. He gave up his financial security to see that his bride was made secure. He gave up his future so that his bride would have a future. He gave up uh, his, his right to have a future to ensure that his bride, the church, did have a future. He went through hell so that his wife could go to heaven, that his bride could always have access to God. That is what it means. That's a picture of marriage. And that's the picture of marriage that I am expected to uphold for the woman that I chose down here. I have an uncomfortable feeling that the sermon may be quoted back to me on some occasions in the future. You know, when I pause for a moment in my self-righteousness and my self-centeredness and take one small glance again at Jesus, all my justification is shattered. You give the last bit of cheesecake to your wife, and so you should. Maybe you work extra hours so that your wife can afford to go back to school or pursue her dreams, and so you should. Welcome to marriage. Maybe you look after the kids for the weekend, Watch reruns of Barney and take them to McDonald's and fill them with Happy Meals. <laughs> so that your wife can maybe get some R&R &R and maybe she can get some time with old friends. Welcome to marriage as God intended it. 
Does it feel like you're laying your life down for her? If it does, then you're probably doing something right. If you're not sure, just take a look at Jesus and what he did for us, his church. I mean, even think about Joseph. About about Mary's husband, this young man gave up his reputation to be the husband of this pregnant, unmarried woman with a very dodgy excuse for how she got about this way. He gave up his business to travel to Egypt to keep his wife and son safe and had to start his business all over again, no doubt. And then a few years later, he had to give that up to travel all the way back to Israel to start back at nothing again in a little hick down called Nazareth because that was what God was telling him to do. This is a man who laid his life down for his wife. And can I say this morning, we need a revolution in our marriages. Amen? Couples who come into marriage so often have no idea. Young men who think it's their wife's duty simply to fulfill all their sexual whims. Young women who think that their mum and dad are still the authority in their lives and they're the ones they have to answer to. Young couples who come in uh, with an idea that they're going to serve themselves instead of serving one another. But the Bible gives us some very clear principles when it comes to marriage. And I, 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 the, the purpose of today's message is not to do some sort of marriage course. But let me just take you back to Genesis 2.24 just for one moment. The principle of first mention, the idea that the first time a topic comes up in Scripture that that the key foundational ideas about that topic for the rest of Scripture are somehow contained in that. And in Genesis 2.24, we read, That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united, or in, the, in old translations, or cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh. Let me give you three little tips here, ladies and gentlemen. Number one, leave. When you marry, you must leave your parents. You must leave their authority. You must leave their influence. You still honor them. You still love them. You can still call them up and ask their advice on things. But you must understand now for both husband and wife that your submission is within the marriage. It is a new thing. And you must leave the past behind in order to take hold of the new thing. Secondly, you've got to unite or cleave. Cleave means literally to stick together. That's what it means. So when you leave, you must unite. There is a new unit. It's about sticking together, leaving and cleaving. You separate from your parents. You unite with your spouse. Your spouse becomes your highest priority after God. Higher than your career, higher than your money, higher than your friends, higher than your interests and activities. It doesn't mean you can't have all of those things as well, but your relationship with your spouse should never suffer as a result of those things. Your relationship with your spouse should be magnified as a result of those things. There have been times when the best thing I could do for our relationship is to send Liz away for a weekend with some, some old girlfriends when she's just run out, run down. She's, she's just in a tough place. There have been times when I've said, baby, you need to get away for a weekend. You, I'll look after the kids. I'll do this. You go out and you need to restore yourself. You need to be refilled again. There are times when, when I need to go and just walk a beach for a few hours. There are times I need to get away and get some time when it's time for me to restore. But what happens is I come back into this relationship and this relationship is richer for it, not poorer for it. When husbands or wives go, I'm out of here, I'm going to go and do this because this is fun. This is what I want to do. No, it has to be a giving, it has to be a serving of one another. We've got to leave, we've got to unite, and then we've got to become one flesh, the Bible says. Becoming one flesh implies not just a sexual unity, not just a, a sexual intimacy, but a growing into one another, a growing into one another in every area of your life. You know, when we stop and we consider Jesus, 
It does confront and dismantles our pride. It is a revolution inside a man and inside a woman. And for those, can I just say this? For those that say, well, that's just not how we do it in our culture. And I'm not just talking about other cultures. Kiwi culture, I was talking to a young man just a wee while ago. And uh, his dad was a good Kiwi bloke. Good Kiwi bloke who earned the money and then spent all of his time at home out in the shed tinkering and pottering around. He's a good Kiwi bloke. He may be a good Kiwi bloke, but he's out of order biblically if he's putting that ahead of spending time with his wife. And so if we say, oh, you know, that's not how our culture is, can I just say the scripture, scripture trumps culture? Because the kingdom of God is the culture that we all come into, amen, and submit ourselves to. This is, this is marriage, and it needs a moral revolution. The second revolution that Jesus brought us is a social revolution. Verse 52, he has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. You know, Christianity puts an end to the world's labels, its titles, its prestige. William Barclay tells a, a wonderful story about a wandering scholar in the Middle Ages called Maritus. He was poor and lived off what he was paid for his wisdom and his teaching. One day he became desperately ill and was taken to a hospital for the poor and homeless. The doctors would do the rounds and, and they spoke in Latin, which was the academic language of the day. The doctors stood by his cot and discussed his case, never dreaming that this patient was educated, never, under, never thinking that this patient could understand what they were saying. And in their conversation, they suggested that he was, as he was a hopeless case and sure to die, he was someone for whom nobody cared. They should use him for medical experiments, would you believe? He looked up and spoke to them in their own language, saying, call no man worthless for whom Christ died. You see, because Christ died for every one of us, we are all suddenly, not only of an estimable value, but we are all suddenly of equal value before the Creator of our souls. I once took my staff to a visit a, a men's shelter that we were supporting. Uh, we would cook frozen meals for this uh, men's night shelter, so whenever homeless men came in, there were always meals there. And This is back in Dunedin, and in fact, Dunedin Elam still provides the meals to the night shelter to this day. And I, I'd taken my staff in to meet with the Christian woman who ran the night shelter and hear a little bit about her vision for it and what it was. And as we sat there talking with her, and she outlaid for us the, the kind of men that come into these places and the kind of challenges they had. I, uh, I spoke up and I said to her, but what about the hopeless cases? What do you do about them? <laughs> and she turned on me with righteous anger, rightly so, and she said to me, Sir, we do not believe in hopeless cases. She says, every one of these men was once some mother's pride and joy, once some mother's beautiful little boy. We never forget that every one of these men is somebody's son. You see, in God, we are all somebody's son, somebody's daughter. And we so like to rank ourselves, don't we, based on our experience, our positions, our CVs, our titles, our accomplishments, Yet as Maritus rightly declares, all titles, all positions, all honors are all declared worthless against the honor of the fact that Jesus gave his life for ours. 
when we understand that what Jesus did in his life and in his death and in his resurrection, he did for all men and women, then we can no longer speak about people as hopeless or worthless or pointless. Jesus brought about a social revolution. And then thirdly, Jesus brought about an economic revolution. In verse 53, he says, He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. And as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the world is so focused on getting, getting and keeping. Yet a Christian community is one in which God calls us to take a little of what we have and make it available to others, to share with those in need, to take responsibility for making a difference where we find a deficit. I love the story about the Roman Emperor Julian the Apostate in 362 AD. He was on his way to the Persian frontier to see how his troops were doing, and he wrote this famous letter to the pagan high priest Asasius. In this letter, he, he talked about how he was appalled that the Roman people would not help the poor, that would not help their own poor, and that not only would their own people not help the poor, but the, the, the religion of which this man was supposedly the head, they were the worst of all. And this is what he says. He says, No Jew ever has to beg, and the impious Galileans, these Christians, support not only their own poor, but ours as well. What an incredible testimony of the power of the economic revolution that Jesus brought that we'll not only look after our own poor, but we'll look after the, the poor of our enemies as well. You see, God is our provider. Because he is our provider, we can share. We are free to find solutions. We're able to be part of the answer. We exist to make a difference. And we're able to. Because God promises us that we can give and not suffer lack, not worry about being in deficit through our giving, because he says, you give, I'll give to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your laps. He promises us again and again that when we give, when we become part of that, when we step into generosity and we take a little of what we have, it's okay. It's okay. We don't have to fear lack through our giving because he has promised to meet every need. He has promised that he sees when we give, that he takes note of those things, and he is sure to look after us in that process. Jesus said, even giving a cup of cold water to somebody who is thirsty will surely be rewarded. Jesus sees. It's a revolution. Why has Christianity so influenced the world, ladies and gentlemen? Because as we belong to Jesus... We exist to make a difference. We give up our pride. We don't need titles and honors to go out there and change the world one life at a time. And we don't need great riches and large amounts of capital because we'll take what little we have and we'll sow it and God will multiply it. And God will do incredible things as we step out and follow this Jesus who we celebrate this Christmas. Jesus truly is a revolution. He's a revolution in my life. He's a revolution in my marriage. He's a revolution in my parenting. He's a revolution in how I work. He's a revolution in how I give. He's a revolution in how I live. And today, as we come to the close of this message, let's pause again and think, 
Where is Jesus most wanting to bring his revolutionary power to work in my life?